If you are just joining us or just uh, have just been joining us for the, maybe the past couple of weeks and you're wondering what we're studying, we're studying the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we're getting close to the end. And this entire series, this whole book, has been answering this question of this, how do I, as a Christian who, who is directed by the principles of God's kingdom, How do I then navigate the tension of living for God and his kingdom, but being present in a city, in a culture, and in a society that thinks differently? How do I navigate that tension? That's basically what the entire book has been about. Now, in case you have not figured out how to navigate that tension up until now, let me just say, we are now looking at the fifth sermon on suffering well, okay? If you want to know how to navigate the tension between one world and the other, Peter keeps saying, the key is in suffering well. I want to read you the last sermon on this subject, one of the last, and one of the most poignant, starting in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, and I'll just read straight through and we'll get into it. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we subject ourselves to your great power and might, to your majesty and honor, to your kingship, to your rule, to your reign, and to your authority. And in the midst of everything that is happening around us, in the midst of everything that is happening in our own lives, we take this moment, we create the space in order to say corporately, you are our king. We'll follow you wherever you send us. Right now, as you send us through your word, I pray that we would follow you with expectancy, with submission, with humility, and with a longing anticipation to know more about you. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand, help us to eagerly desire, and help us to change away from the things that so easily entangled us before to look more like your son and the marvelous kingdom and inheritance you have called us to participate in. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. The fiery trial. Things change when you follow Jesus. 
It might not change right away. It might take some time. It might be very intense. It might be subtle, but things will change. If you take him seriously at his words, if you read his words, the red letters, but also everything else, Paul, the Old Testament prophets, everything that testified to Jesus, it's all his word. If you take it seriously, if you endeavor, if you so risk looking at this book and saying, I believe that this is God's word and it tells me something important about Jesus. If you risk taking his words seriously and practicing habitually taking his words seriously, even when they're difficult and hard, your life's going to change. And you're also going to encounter difficulty. When I first got saved at this church over a decade ago, I lost all my friends overnight. I was working in a secular environment, had a lot of unbelieving friends. Obviously, I was an unbeliever. Of course, it's good as a a Christian to keep your non-believing friends, but I don't know what happened. Overnight, I lost them all. I kind of understand why. I mean, there, was, there were some, some friends who, after leaving behind my old lifestyle, I, I recognized, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you're like, I, I don't have anything in common with this person other than we like to get drunk. And so when I got saved, it's like, oh, gosh, our lives are so different. <laughs> I barely know this person, if you take that away. There were other people in my group of friends that I probably lost their friendship because it was my fault. There was that one poor guy that, as soon as I got saved, took him to Freebirds and preached to him for two and a half hours. (laughs) Over one of those fat $10 burritos. It was awesome. I was just excited, you know? You know that moment when you first, like, your eyes just open, and for the first time you're like, this thing is real. And I just regurgitated all of my excitement on this poor guy. Never saw him again. (laughs) I don't know. Some examples were probably from my stupidity, immature excitement. Others were because of different lifestyles. It was probably right. But then there was a whole slew of people that I just lost because of the path. I know it told me, showed, showed it to me, because of the path that I had chosen was in such conflict. It was so foreign to the way that they lived their life. It wasn't that I was judging them or condemning them. It wasn't that we all of a sudden hated each other. It was just that our paths all of a sudden became so different. Following Jesus has a cost. Perhaps you felt that cost in small ways. Maybe you've had an opportunity at work to cut corners. And if you did it, it would pay dividends in the long run. And yet your conscience is screaming at you. Perhaps it's socially acceptable, culturally acceptable to do something, and yet your conscience is buffeting you, saying you you know you don't want to do that. Maybe you want to get drunk at a weekend party, but you know it's wrong. Maybe you have a friend who you know just needs to hear about Jesus, 
but you have not told them about Jesus because you are afraid of what they're going to think about you. Or maybe being a Christian just isn't giving you the good life that you were expecting, the good life that you were anticipating after reading that New York Times bestseller or after watching the dude in the bespoke suit on uh, television tell you that if you follow God, everything that you've ever wanted will, will happen. You might not describe yourself as persecuted, per se. Like if you read the Bible and see people being beaten and in prison, you're like, that's not me. But you might be able to say, I'm, I'm consistently walking with Jesus, and man, it is taking a toll. Maybe at this point you're asking yourself, alongside that, is it worth it? What goes through your mind when you suffer? Whether it's ridicule and persecution, whether it's social ostracization, whether it's simply not doing things that you used to be able to do, that you wish you could do, but that cannot, uh, cannot now do anymore. What goes through your mind when you are suffering the cost of following Jesus? Perhaps your morale is low. Perhaps you feel discouraged. Perhaps you truly, in the deepest part of your heart, love Jesus and you want to follow him and you want to, you, you want to follow him and his kingdom and you want, to, uh, uh, you want to be a part of this redemptive story in which he's telling to the world and yet your morale is low. Perhaps you're suffering and out of that suffering you're thinking, is God angry at me? Because I'm doing all the right things but nothing is going well for me. Or maybe he's not angry, maybe he's just indifferent. Maybe he's just ignoring me. I mean, there are, you know, a few billion people in the world all crying his name. Maybe he's too busy to see that I lost my job. Perhaps in so doing, you try even harder day in and day out to be holy. But not because you love God, but because you think that if you were a little more righteous and a little more holy, God would approve of you accept you, and the suffering would stop. Any of these scenarios or situations that go through our minds when we go through difficulty, questioning God, questioning ourselves, almost always stem from a very deep-seated belief that probably many of you have, probably many of us have, that if we suffer as Christians we must be doing Christianity wrong. Deep-seated belief that if we are suffering, we must be doing Christianity wrong. This often comes out in subtle but humorous ways, such as in, uh, actually on Instagram. Whenever you see someone hashtag the word blessed, it is always attached to something good happening in their lives. I'm not telling you to stop doing that. But anytime you see the word, it's almost always describing a sunset, a glass of Merlot, a job promotion, an engagement, or a wedding. In other words, when things are going my way, I'm blessed. 
When things are going my way, there is a divine favor upon me. God's face is being shown towards me. I can tell that he is shining his face on me. I can tell that he is accepting me and loving me and approving of me. I can tell that he is blessing me because I have money, I have friends, I have stuff. Blessing. Therefore, my measurement and my gauge at how I am doing at following Jesus is based on my stuff, my friends, my social status, my security, and my comfort. Hashtag blessed. You never see the word hashtag, you never see the hashtag blessed sign next to like, I just lost my job. I have the biggest headache I have ever experienced in my life. Hashtag blessed. Peter corrects this by saying, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. It's almost like he knows what we're thinking. He's like answering all the questions that are in your mind. You know what the fiery trial is? That's his way, after talking about suffering uh, three, four, five times, summarizing it in a single phrase that many of us can understand, the fiery trial. You ever been through what you might describe as a fiery trial? Peter's saying, yeah, they come. Don't be surprised. You're not necessarily doing anything wrong. This is normal. This is normal for the person who wants to follow Jesus. The fiery trial could be what he spoke about all the way at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 7, the various trials that come by fire. Or in chapter 3, verse 14 through 17, where we suffer for righteousness' sake, when we do the right thing that we're supposed to do and we pay the cost for it. It could be in chapter 2, verse 18 through 17, when he describes difficult relationships, actually all the way through chapter 3, difficult relationships with unbelievers who have power over you, whether it's the uh, government, whether it's an unbelieving spouse or an unbelieving employer. When we are in relationships, we were trying so hard to honor Christ and yet we're paying for it. It could be in chapter four, verse one through six, when it's not persecution at all, but it's rather what he calls suffering in the flesh. Suffering the desire to do something that feels good in order to do something that is good. Could be any of those things. And when we live this lifestyle by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, hey, Living this way isn't going to shield you from difficulty. It's still going to come. Don't be surprised. It's normal. Fiery trials are normal for believers. Don't think that it's strange that it's happening to you. It's not strange. This is to be expected. In fact, he goes so far as to say, actually, rejoice when it does happen. Oh, lost me there. Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Not only is it normal, but it is participating in the life of Jesus. You're sharing in Christ's suffering. Well, assuming that you are, right? Not all suffering is godly suffering. I've met some pretty mean-spirited brothers and sisters in Christ. Harsh, self-centered, argumentative, And they lose all their friends too. 
And almost without fail, they respond by saying, suffering for Jesus, being persecuted, being persecuted. And I'm like, you are a jerk. You didn't lose your friends because, like, persecution or nah? Like, you, you lost your friends because of your, your sin. Peter would say this in chapter 2, verse 20. What is the credit if you sin and are beaten for it and you endure? For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In fact, Peter would go on to say in verse 15 that we are in one way to assess what we're going through to see if it's from the right heart. He says in verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. <laughs> in other words, Christians today are being ridiculed. Perhaps you are too. But sometimes we're being ridiculed for justified reasons. It might be the way that you handle political discourse with your friends. It might be a lack of concern for the poor and the marginalized. According to the Barna Group, it is because of hypocrisy, it's because of judgmentalism, that many people in the world outside of the church look inside the church and condemn them. It's not persecution. That's not persecution. That's suffering for evil. But I love how Peter throws in meddler into a list of things like murder, thief, and evildoer. Meddler is a hard word to translate. This is the only time that it turns up in the Bible, but most people think that it's tantamount to sticking your nose in other people's business. (laughs) I love that Peter throws that into the same pot as a murderer. I think he's doing it just to, like, to cover all the bases. So like, he's, like, you can imagine people in the congregation listening to this letter being written, like, okay, don't be a murderer. Oh, awesome. Check mark. It's only 10 a.m., but I haven't done that yet. <laughs> Thief, check. I'm golden. Don't be a meddler. Oh, no. <laughs> Talking about my DNA right now, bro. He's housing the intensity of a sin like murder alongside the ordinariness of something like meddling. It's as if to say anything not of Christ should be gone from you. Whether it's something as intense as murder and thievery or it's just sticking your nose in other people's business. Whether it's condemnation and shaming or judgmentalism. I don't want you to give any cause for Christ's name to be uh, dishonored. The big and the small alike. Rather, the person who uh, goes through suffering should go suffering, verse 19, according to God's will. Suffering that is according to God's will. In other words, it's all of those things that we've been studying through 1 Peter. Suffering because you took Jesus seriously. Counting the cost because you took Jesus seriously. In other words, Peter isn't talking about just a headache or a flat tire or a bad day, or a relational breakup. God cares about all of those things, and there's other verses in the Bible that speak to those things, but Peter is speaking about any difficulty that is a direct result of you obeying Jesus. In other words, you who are at your job wondering if you should cut corners, Peter's saying, don't do it, man. Don't give up. Don't go back. 
I know you're going through a fiery ordeal, but don't give up. It is interesting to me that the rhetoric of so many religions and politicians and even companies is winning by beating the competition or the enemy. It's by getting ahead by beating the other guy. Christianity, not only is it founded by a guy who embraced losing by death, but actually calls all of his followers to suffer with the founder. It is completely opposite from everything that we are used to seeing. It is an upside-down paradigm from what we are used to understanding as winning the game. To win, if that even makes sense, in this race, it means dying to yourself, picking up your cross, and suffering with the founder of your faith who also died and was raised again. So bizarre when you think about it. When you hear people like the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, who literally had everything, actually had everything, had a pedigree, was born into the right family, was rich, was the best at what he did, was in the center of social power and privilege, who was at the forefront of his career, and who says in Philippians 3, I have counted all of those things as loss. He wasn't speaking metaphorically. He actually lost those things. He said, I have counted those things as loss. In other words, if I can paraphrase, I am willing, and I actually did this, lose everything that used to be so valuable for me. For what, Paul? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And listen, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is absolutely bizarre. Someone like the Apostle Paul, who had everything that he ever needed and wanted, all of a sudden, something would so happen in his mind and heart to say, I will lose everything that I've ever held dear for the chance to suffer with Jesus. Who says that? What kind of religion is this? What kind of movement is that? You'll never understand until you see Jesus the way that Paul saw him. Acts chapter 5, verse 41, then they left the presence of the council after getting beaten, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Romans chapter 8, verse 17, and if, children, if you're children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Over and over throughout the New Testament, this is the pattern of the Christian life. Christians who are willing to suffer, participate in suffering with Jesus. And to the outside world, and perhaps to people in this room, it makes absolutely no sense until the gospel has opened your mind and your heart and your spiritual eyes to see exactly what you are gaining in Christ. But perhaps you're asking this question right now. This does not sound attractive to me. I like my stuff, I like my security, I like my comfort, and I like doing whatever I want whenever I want to do it. <laughs> Why would I give all of that up to suffer with someone I can't even see? Peter tells us. And I think he tells us three things. One, to the person who's willing to suffer for God, 
you can be absolutely sure and confident that God has you. You'll never be lost. You'll never be abandoned. Getting this from verse 13. For those who are willing to participate in Christ's suffering, you can rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What Peter is saying right here is he's connecting your future glory to your present suffering. He's saying they're one and the same. One comes after the other. In other words, he's been saying all this time that suffering for Christ is partly an evidence of your salvation. That if you are willing to suffer the loss of so many of these things in order to follow Christ, it must mean that there is something different in your heart. That Christ opened up your heart and he gave you new desires and a new ambition. Only people who have been set free by the power of the Holy Spirit would ever say, I want to follow this crucified Messiah and I'm willing to lose anything in order to do it. I love how the NLT reads uh, for verse 13. It says, indeed, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. Listen to this. So that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Peter is saying, hey, if you stick it out, you're going to see the end. You belong to God and he's not going to abandon you. It's the same type of thing that Jesus would say in Matthew 24, 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Stick it out. I'm not going to abandon you. Don't you abandon me. It's a sign that he has you and he will never leave you or forsake you. He doesn't just have you. He's also with you. God is with you in a special way when you are going through difficulty for his namesake in a way that you cannot possibly understand in a place of prosperity, affluence, and comfort. He shows up in a unique way in the midst of people's suffering. Peter says in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are hashtag blessed. (laughs) That's not the way that we use the word. Peter says it's, it's one Things are going difficult because you're obeying Jesus that you're actually blessed. What does blessed mean? Peter likely got his use of the word from uh, Jesus. Who in Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, gave an extensive explanation of what it meant to be blessed. To be blessed according to Jesus means that there is something in your future that is affecting the way that you live your life in the present. It refers to a future hope. It refers to something in the future that is giving you hope. Let me just show you some examples of how Jesus used it in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. There's something in your future that is anchoring your mind and your view of the world to Christ. Blessed. So that even in the midst of Uh, destructive circumstances, 
Even when your world is falling apart, you can still consider yourself blessed because you know what you're hoping in. Blessed refers to something in the future, but it's not just in the future. Because in the same book, Jesus also says things like, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There's a future element to being blessed, but there's also a present element to being blessed. You are blessed by the kingdom right now in some tangible way. If I could rephrase all of this to give us a working definition of what it meant to be blessed, I would say something like this. To be blessed means that the reality of God's kingdom has peaked back into the present to touch you. Some element of God's kingdom in the future has rewound itself to affect you in the present. Blessed. That's why you can be beaten, imprisoned, crying, grieving, and still say, I am blessed of the Lord. Because none of this can change my ultimate reality. In fact, Peter would say, A very similar thing in the next line when he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And he gives his own definition of what blessed means by saying, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He's saying in those moments when you want to give up, but you are choosing to follow Christ, the spirit comes upon you in a special way. God's presence is with you in a special and unique way when you suffer for his name's sake. It is when you are deciding moment by moment for Christ over comfort, over security, over stuff that you experience more of his presence and perhaps an element of his presence that you've never experienced before in your life. That's what would cause someone like the prophet Job who had everything before he lost everything, kept his faith in God, and in chapter 41 would say something like this, you know? And by the way, Job was a, a righteous man, one of the most righteous men on earth, the book says, before he suffered. Suffered everything, and in Job chapter 41 would look up to God and say, you know, before my ears heard about you, but now my eyes see you. It was as if in the midst of suffering he got a deeper experience and view of his God that he had not before. He is with you. Lastly, he is transforming you. He tells us, Peter tells us, not to be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you. You remember when that came up earlier in uh, I think it was chapter, chapter 1 verse 7? Don't be, uh, it is necessary that you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When suffering comes, it is often working towards our testing. And it is better to suffer for your faith now than to suffer judgment for rejecting Christ later. He also goes on to say, Peter does, in chapter 4, verse 17, 
For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? This is maybe an uncomfortable verse for many of us to hear. What does that mean? Judgment to begin at the household of God. In context of the suffering that we are enduring, it almost sounds like God is saying, which makes my ears cringe, right? It almost sounds like he is like he's this guy up there making us go through difficult things because he wants to judge us. Like the like this giant divine timeout. He's just beating us over the head with the sufferings of this life because he wants to teach us a lesson. Is that what God is doing when it says judgment has to begin at the household of God? No. Different kind of judgment. Most people believe that this phrase comes from an Old Testament prophet, Malachi. I want to read you the verse that that it comes from. Malachi 3, verse 1 through 4. The prophet says, speaking for God, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, the priests of God in the Old Testament, like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. You see, what many of us hear when we hear judgment is condemnation. That God is sending us through difficulties because he wants to teach us a lesson. It's what many of you maybe thought at the beginning. Why am I going through suffering? Is God unhappy with me? Am I not doing the Christian thing good enough? Is he trying to teach me a lesson? No. He's not condemning you. He is purifying you. He is stripping away all of the things that hold you back. Things that maybe you want to cling to. Things that you're clinging to that you don't even know you have. He is using things in your life to strip those things away. In fact, that word in uh, verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's from Proverbs 11. You might even hear that and be like, the righteous are scarcely saved? Like we barely make it? That's not the, the meaning of the word. Scarcely is, uh, comes from the word molus, which means with difficulty. If the righteous are saved with difficulty or through difficulty, right? God uses everything in your life to save you. He doesn't use just the good. He also uses the bad things. He turns everything around for your ultimate good. He's not, He's not at a disservice when things around you are falling apart. He can use even the biggest crises in your life, the crises. He can use difficulty. He can use suffering. He can use persecution. He can use setbacks. He can use all of those things, and he does it. Yet even at this point, you might be still tripping over this idea that God would use suffering in our lives. And truly, you might even, maybe you're a dad or a mom, and you'd be like, I would never make my kid suffer in order to make them better people. That is so, it's so evil and hostile. 
And yet you will withhold certain things from your kid, won't you? You will, knowing a lot more about life than your two-year-old, keep them from certain things that they desperately want in the moment, right? If you didn't, bad dad. For example, Bree and I uh, are endeavoring to be expert toothbrushers of children, which is, in my 35 years, one of the hardest things I've ever done. Not so much with Abby, she loves it. But Jude hates me. He hates me when he sees me with that toothbrush. And for a long time, we just tried to get by. Like our toothbrushing sessions would last like two seconds because he would squirm and scream so much. And we just try to get in there. He now has a mouthful of teeth, and we're like, and he's like, ah, just crying, bloody murder, swatting, punching, crocodile tears coming down his face. And I am a, you know, I'm a bleeding heart dad, and so is Brianna, bleeding heart mom. And we're just like, every night, we're like, okay, whatever. And then we took him to the dentist for the first time, and we were persecuted. <laughs> Dennis said, you are not brushing your kid's teeth right. He's got plaque. He's got this film. You need to get in there, man. You need to, like, do whatever you can to brush, like, right there, this tooth that's right back here. (laughs) And we're looking at the dentist going, you've obviously never had kids before. (laughs) Not true. Had kids. But we're like... What do we do? Like, this kid is biting our flesh. He's, like, swinging punches at us. He's bench-pressing us and throwing us through the window. Like, this is, imp- this is physically impossible. How do you brush a kid's tooth? They don't understand plaque. They don't understand all of this. And he's like, well, you've got to lay him on the floor and hold one. It's going to be a two-person job. This is what the dentist told us. Two-person job. One of you has to hold hands, hold body like a straitjacket, hold them to the ground, while the other pries open lips to get inside the molars. You want to get to the furthest area up here. That's where the plaque is coming. And if you don't do it, your kid's going to get cavities. Oh, no. So we tried it. And it was a nightmare. (laughs) Every single night. If you were to come by our house in the middle of the night and look through our windows, please don't do that. (laughs) But if you were to, you would walk into the most nightmarish, horrific scene. Right, Brianna? Just Jude on the floor, screaming, us holding him. Abby now participates in the holding. <laughs> she loves it. And she's giggling. Like, she's just excited. She's like, I want to hold him down. <laughs> There's three of us holding this poor kid on the ground, and I've just got this fish hook on his lip, just getting Jude in there. And he's squirming, and I'm like just bumping his gums because he's moving his head, and he's screaming, tears rolling down, neighbors looking in, like, what are you doing to your kid? I'm just brushing his teeth. (laughs) Our whole lives are like that, right? If you're a parent, you know this. Your life is filled with you telling your kid, i got to brush your teeth. I don't want to. No, you can't have donuts for breakfast, but I want them. No, you got to take a bath, but I don't want to. I want to swim in my filth for all of eternity. <laughs> We're constantly putting my kids through their own personal little nightmare. 
but it's not true. We love them. We don't want them to get cavities. And they'll never understand that until they're 35 in the dentist with their own kids. Or what about when my kid falls off a scooter and I, I pick him back up and hold him or her and kiss them where they got scratched and embrace them until they're, they're recovered and then I, I say, hey, get back on the scooter. What? Oh! What happens when, when my daughter Abby is, is ridiculed by her friends, which is never really that bad. It's usually like, but when my kid suffers because of their friends, and I kneel down and I embrace my kid, or Brianna holds a kid, uh, our kids tightly and reassures them that they're, they're loved, but then says, go back to preschool. <laughs> what happens when we don't shield them from the world, but we actively teach them how to engage with something as simple as a, a mean preschooler? They might in the moment think that they're suffering, but we understand. We're preparing you for life. We don't always understand the things that God is doing around us. And perhaps for some of you, it feels like he's got a fish hook in your cheek and he's just jamming a toothbrush in your face. And you're like, why are you doing this? Why is this happening? And we don't understand. We're two-year-olds. We don't have the wherewithal to understand what plaque is. But God knows and he loves you. And he promises in Romans 8, 28 that in the midst of some of the difficulties of life, he is able to turn around all things for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He doesn't just use the good things in your life. He also uses the bad. He's not the author of evil. He's not the author of suffering. But he's not above using difficulties in your life to shape you to become more like him. Why would we endure that? Because we have the promise that he's better than anything. And that in the midst of suffering, he'll never let us go. He'll always be with us and he'll even use the junk in our lives to make us more like him. And Peter with this leaves us with a final charge. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Trust in God while continuing to do the right thing. In other words, he's calling, you to, he's calling you to follow him and promising that it's gonna be worth it. There might be moments in your life where you feel like it's not worth it, but it will be worth it in the long run. When Paul, uh, Paul said to Timothy, this is why I suffer as I do. I am not ashamed. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. I know and am convinced in who I am believing in. Are you convinced? God has you. He's with you, and he's transforming you into his likeness. You might say, well, prove it. I don't see him. I don't feel him, I don't hear him. How do I know that he has me, that he is with me, that he is transforming me? Because Jesus already did the very thing that he's calling you and I to do. When Peter tells us, in the, uh, uh, speaking for Christ, to, that those who suffer 
must entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Christ already did that. When in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was approaching the cross, looking for any other option to get this mission done, praise to the Father, is there another way? But not my will be done, but yours. And when he was hanging on the cross for our sins, for yours and mine, it says that Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus was the first one to entrust his soul to a faithful creator while doing good. And he says, I've already done everything that needs to be done for you to make it. Entrust your souls to the Father. Maybe the problem for many of us is that we don't know Christ the way that Paul knew him. Maybe we can't see what Paul sees in Jesus. Maybe it's still for many of us just another religion, a grouping of moral commands that we stuff into our pockets to change our lives. No wonder we're disappointed when our lives aren't looking the way that we thought they would look. Maybe the world has so tainted your perception of what is truly good and what is valuable and what is worthwhile that you just cannot fathom how anyone would rejoice for suffering for Christ. And yet you know this isn't true in all the other areas of life. Look at the ways that we approach romance, a job that we desperately want, our education, even personal goals. We are willing to lose anything and do what it takes in order to win a prize. Why can't God be that prize for you? What is blinding our eyes today from seeing him as more glorious than your dream job, more glorious than a dream spouse, more glorious than comfort and security and friends? if we would be able to see what people like Paul were able to see when they said in Corinthians, this light momentary affliction. <laughs> you notice what Paul is describing. The time that he was beaten with rods, whipped with a cat of nine tails, imprisoned falsely, ridiculed, shipwrecked, stoned alive, left for dead. And he's calling those things light momentary afflictions. He's not being sarcastic. He actually views those things as light and momentary. Why? This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. Paul was able to see something. He was able to see a treasure in the field that was so valuable to him he was willing to sell everything that he had in order to apprehend it. But this morning, I don't care about Paul. I care about you. You need to get this today. You are the one that needs to see Jesus as better than anything else. Peter has continually been telling us the way to navigate the tension is to be able to suffer well by the power of the Holy Spirit. The only way you're gonna be able to suffer well is, to, is if you are able to see Christ as more valuable than anything that you're gonna lose in this life. Do you see him that way? 